You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, so uh, several weeks ago when I had the opportunity to fill in for Brian for one Sunday, <clears throat> we, I ran through about five lessons worth of stuff on the preparation and delivery of sermons. And I could tell as, we, as I crammed through a whole bunch of stuff that there was a lot of people who had questions because some people came up and asked me questions afterwards. And I could tell from the reaction of people that we got to the end of the hour that there was questions that people had on the subject. So we're going to pick that up and we're, I'm going to kind of recap what we talked about last time just to refresh in your mind what it was that we covered and then see if you have questions regarding this. And, and I want to bring in some other things that I kind of breezed over or skipped over. So we're going to be talking about the preparation and delivery of sermons. Um, and this was actually Thomas brought this up. In case you don't remember, Thomas brought this up. He wanted to know what goes into preparing a sermon from the time that you sit down on Monday morning. What are the steps that you go through before you actually get up and preach a sermon? And as I mentioned last time, I think that going through this and, and knowing the process helps you as a listener to determine whether or not what you're hearing from the pulpit or any teacher or preacher is in fact what the preacher or teacher should be doing. So I'm going to go through uh, quickly the steps, and this ties in with something we're going to be doing in our Sunday school class in five to six weeks, depending on when Brian gets done with his stuff. We're going to go through Bible study methods and hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a big fancy term that means interpretation. All of you are hermeneuticians right now, even though you don't know it. You practice hermeneutics every day. When you read the newspaper, you practice hermeneutics. When you read a letter, you practice hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the art and science of biblical interpretation. It's just how do I interpret a genre of writing? When I read or hear something spoken, how do I, how do I practice interpretation? And you do this all the time. If I say to you, the early bird gets the worm, you understand what that means, right? You have just practiced hermeneutics. You didn't even know that. But we're going to go through the principles of how do we interpret Scripture because we have in Scripture all of these different types of literature. We have apocalyptic literature. We have parables. We have figures of speech. We have metaphors. We have narratives. We have didactic literature. We have poetry. Uh, we have proverbial sayings. So how do we interpret these different passages of Scripture? What are the principles that we use to make sure that when we study Scripture, we're arriving at the right interpretation of Scripture? So we're going to be going through that in adult Sunday school class in the next five to six weeks. I'd like to say after Brian gets done with his thing. Um, so this today kind of ties into that. And I want to introduce you to three words, and we'll cover this in five to six weeks. I want to introduce you quickly to, to three words. Two of them are actually actual words. One of them is a made-up word. But I, I came across this made-up word, and I had to include it today because this is good stuff. So the first word is uh, exegesis. Does anybody know what the term exegesis means? You hear people say it all the time. Brian says it. You just say it. You hear me say it. Exe- What's that? Nope. Actually, that's not right. Uh, that, that's kind of the process of exegesis, yeah. The exegesis means to draw out of. So when you exegete a passage of Scripture, and, and Brian has used this word a few times in recent weeks, when you exegete a passage of Scripture, what you're doing is you're taking the passage of Scripture and you are observing it and analyzing it and studying it to draw out the meaning of the passage. So you're looking at the passage itself and you're saying, what does 
out of this passage of Scripture, the meaning should sort of come to the surface. So I'm drawing the meaning out of it. There's meaning in there. What does that mean? The meaning is not there for me to determine. It's there for me to discover because the text has a meaning. So I don't determine what the meaning of the text is. I discover what it is by looking at it in its original context and applying hermeneutics. So exegete means to draw the meaning out of the text. Do you know what the term eisegete means? Well, you don't put it back in. You put something else into the text that's not there. Yeah, so eisegete means I take the text of Scripture, and then I got what I want it to mean, and I cram it into the text of Scripture, whether it's there and means that or not. Ice means into, or eisegete means to put something into the text. You have a question? That's not biblical. That's not biblical, no. No, no. Um, and I, I have in my, in my, uh, in my office, I have actually a list of examples of eisegesis that I've run into, and I collect these things to include in our Bible study methods. Um, pastors can do this all the time when they take a passage of Scripture that they think means something that they want it to mean, and they will quote that, and then they go off on a tangent, and they, and they just draw out one little element of the text for their purposes. And so eisegete means to read something into the text that's not there. Exegete means to draw out of the text. Now, then I came up with a third word, and this one is made up, and I got this one from Phil Johnson, and this is good. Narcegesis. Do you know what narcegesis is? Narcegesis is when the pastor sees himself in every passage of Scripture that he preaches. So he sees something in there that commends him or that he illustrates perfectly. He's a perfect example of this. That's narcegesis. Narcegesis is when you see yourself in every passage of Scripture. We do this when we read Old Testament passages to Israel. And, oh, that was me. That's God speaking to me. There, that's my, that's my situation. And we, we see ourselves there rather than saying, okay, this is actually given to this group of people for this purpose. What are the principles that I can draw out there? How do I obey this? We see ourselves in every passage of Scripture. So that's the difference between actually eisegesis and exegesis. And narcegesis is, is made up. But it was good. Um, the goal in preparing a sermon, this whole process that I, that I um, went over with you several weeks ago, the goal of preparing a sermon is always that the meaning of the text becomes the meaning of the sermon. The point of the text becomes the point of the sermon. So that's the purpose of studying a passage of Scripture. So you open up the passage of Scripture, and by observation and interpretation, you try and arrive at what was the meaning of this passage when when John sat down and wrote John 10. What did he have in mind? What was his intended meaning? And so then you look at the context, and you look at other things that John wrote and the words that John uses and the historical context, and the language and the syntax and the grammar and all of that, and you try and come to the conclusion, and you should always be able to try and state in one sentence what I think the central idea of this passage is. So when I look at a passage of Scripture, I want to be able to state in one or two very concise sentences, what is this passage of Scripture saying? And so I arrive at what is the meaning of the text, and then the goal of a sermon or a Sunday school lesson is to teach people the the meaning that you have arrived at. And so everything around a sermon or a Sunday school lesson is designed to shine light upon that meaning and to draw that meaning out and to show how that meaning applies and to defend that meaning from the context. So that if you say something, a text means something, you have to explain the meaning, but then you have to also show everybody, how did I arrive at that meaning? Why is that meaning significant? Why does it mean this and not something else? How does this fit with the context? How does the, how would the original audience have understood this? And the meaning of a text is never what it means to me. You guys have heard me say this before. It doesn't matter what it means to me. What matters is what it means, and specifically what it meant to the original audience, because a a passage of Scripture never means anything other than what it meant to the original people who read that passage of Scripture. So if you arrive at the meaning of a passage of Scripture, you think this passage means this, 
And if, if you can imagine that you would take that back and lay that in front of the original audience and say, this is what I think it means. If they would say to you, no, that's crazy. That's not what it means. Then you have reached, you've reached the wrong meaning. A passage of scripture never means anything other than what it originally meant. It only has one meaning. It has multiple applications, but only one meaning. It means one thing. And our job is to dis- discover what that passage of scripture meant to the original hearers. And then we apply that principle that we get out of that study. We apply that to our lives in all the various ways. Any questions about that before we move on? Okay, so that's the process of studying and arriving at that meaning. Thomas? Well, I don't think that the original audience of Revelation had no clue what those things meant. I would argue that the original audience, some of that stuff may have been veiled or enigmatic, and they might not have been able to see how those things would be fulfilled. But I think that, I mean, the term revelation means to make something clear, to reveal it. So people who say that the book of Revelation is full of mysteries and shrouded in mysteries, and you just can't understand, it's all enigma, and you can't understand anything in there, and you've and you got to be able to decipher all the clues in Revelation. That's that's not... The book, the title of the book means to make something clear, to reveal something and make it clear. So why would Jesus give a revelation to make something clear to his apostles and his prophets and his churches, which is completely unclear? I don't think the book of Revelation is unclear. But when you approach the book of Revelation with certain theological presuppositions, then it doesn't make any sense. But if you approach the book of Revelation understanding, okay, this is intended to be clear. Does that mean there's no figures of speech in it? No, there's all kinds of figures of speech and metaphors and analogies and hyperboles and and symbolism and all of that stuff because it's apocalyptic literature, so it's a specific style of genre. But a metaphor is intended to make things clear. A figure of speech is intended to clarify things. So, go ahead. So when I say to you, the early bird gets the worm, you understand what that means. That's not an enigma. That's not a, a figure of speech that's shrouded in mystery that you can't figure out what I'm saying because that figure of speech has a specific meaning. Well, you've heard me say before, and, and Brian has said this, if the plain sense makes good sense, then all other sense is nonsense. And that's, that's a rule of thumb. So I always, no matter what it is, we, no matter what we read, we always read a passage of scripture or everything we read, whether it's scripture or not. We read it in the sense, in, in the, in the sense, we take it at face value given its genre. So when I read this, let me give you an illustration. When I read the sports section of the newspaper and I read the Cubs hammered the Yankees. I understand what that means. Sorry to pick on your Yankees, Lanny. I understand what that means. It it doesn't mean that they literally took hammers and beat the Yankees to death with them, does it? It means that they did what? Yeah, they outscored them. I understand what that means. So I have a a sports section, and I read the headlines of the sports section, and I understand that they're going to use figure of speech, they're going to use hyperbole, but I interpret these things with the intended meaning of the author given the genre. Then when I turn over to the comic section, and I read the comic section, I don't read the comic section with the same with the same glasses on that I read the editorial section or the front page news or the advertisements. So each one of those genres, each one of those genres has to be interpreted in the sense in which it is intended. So poetry has a certain style about it. We have to keep that in mind. And we understand that when the Psalms talk of the trees clapping their hands in praise to God, that the trees don't literally have hands, but that this is a poetic symbolism that communicates something. That makes sense? So you, all of these genres of Scripture have certain things that bear upon them when we interpret them. They, they bring certain things to the table that have to be considered when we interpret them. So if you're looking at, for instance, Revelation chapter 20, 
the passage that all millennialists have a certain perspective on and post-millennialists have a certain perspective on and pre-millennialists have a certain perspective on. You have to ask yourself, okay, it is apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, but I still have to take the language in a straightforward sense unless the context demands otherwise. So every figure of speech even in scripture, you have to take it in the sense of which is in, and you have to take it in a straightforward way unless the context or the text demands otherwise. Then there was Greek words for John to say a long time. But it doesn't say a long time. It says a thousand years and he says it not once but six times in the context. If he wanted to say it was a long time, he would have said it was a long time or an undisclosed amount of time or a long period of time. There were words that he would use to say that. But he says a thousand years and he says it in a literal sense all the way through. So six times. So it wasn't to, to argue that, well, we can't take a thousand, we can't, we just can't take a thousand literally or in any straightforward sense. There's nothing in the context that demands that we take it otherwise. There's nothing about a thousand years that doesn't make any sense. Given the context and the flow of the passage, why, why, why am I, why must I take a thousand years to mean anything other than a thousand years? There's nothing in the context that demands that to be the case. Why can't it be a literal kingdom for a thousand years? There's nothing about that that's impossible. There's nothing that doesn't make sense. It fulfills Old Testament prophecies. Same goes with creation. There's nothing, there's nothing about a young earth creation in six, seven literal 24 hour days that is nonsensical. There's nothing about Genesis that demands that I take it in any sense other than the way in which it was written. To contrast with that, when Jesus says, I am the door, I would never say, okay, he's a wooden slab of, he's a slab of wood with hinges and a, and a doorknob. Well, that analogy demands that I understand it in some way other than a literal, a wooden literal sense. With the pun, a wooden literal sense. It would never, you would never do that. You can't do that with that analogy. Because there's, because that, Jesus' statement, I am the door, demands that I understand that. I know he's not a wooden slab with, with hinges. So it demands that I understand, okay, so he's using a metaphor. Now I need to understand what the metaphor is. But the metaphor itself, though it's an analogy, speaks of something literal. Something actually literal. And what is it that, when he says, I am the door, what is he literally saying? He is the entryway for the sheep. That's the literal truth that's being spoken of. All men must come through him. He is the only way. He is the access to the sheep. Those are the literal truths that that figure of speech communicates. So as long as a figure of speech or an analogy or something in Scripture doesn't demand, uh, the phrasing itself doesn't demand that I take it in sense, any sense other than the way in which it is written, I'm not justified in assuming that it's written in a way to mean something other than what it just naturally says. The trees clapping their hands. I understand trees don't have hands. So I can't take that literally because that doesn't make any sense. But there's nothing about Revelation 20 that doesn't make any sense. There's nothing about anything in the passage that requires me. Right, so that, so, no, I understand what you're saying. So then my response with that would be, so it is then, in your, in, in your analogy, it is the historical context and the grammatical context that would determine the meaning of the word cool. Those things would play into that. Is there any evidence that they just used the term 1,000 years in a flippant way just to speak of a long period of time? Well, I've never seen any evidence that there is. And just because they used it doesn't mean that it always means that. So if if I were to say to you, I, I'm going to the beach today and it's going to be cool. So just because hippies used it that way and hippies use it to mean it's going to be a neat experience doesn't mean that every time I use the word cool, it has to mean that. So we have to let John in his context determine what John means. That's eisegesis. When you take the way a word was commonly used and you grab that meaning and you cram it into Revelation 20 when it's not justified. 
That's eisegesis. Exegesis is saying, what does the text say in itself? Is there anything in the text itself that demands that I take this other than in a straightforward, literal way? And there's nothing there. It makes complete sense. Revelation 20 makes complete sense. Given the context and the history and the way John used language, there's nothing that is, there's nothing irrational about it. There's nothing impossible about a thousand year kingdom on this earth where Jesus reigns literally in Jerusalem. There's, there's nothing irrational about that. But if I approach the con, if I approach that text with a presupposition that I can't have that view of the millennium, then I have to find some way to make Revelation 20 say what I want it to say. And that's what I think all millennialists and post-millennialists do. But this wasn't supposed to be a, a discussion about uh, eschatology. So does that look... The, yeah, Thomas. The God has given to his church people with um, the gift of teaching for the purpose of equipping the saints and edifying them for ministry. It's a means of God sanctifying his people. When we all get together, we sit under scripture, we're all learning together. I'm learning, you're learning, we're interacting together. The spirit of God is here working in my heart and your heart and, and everything goes on. It's a dynamic and it all results in the sanctification of the body of Christ. So God has given us that because not everybody has the capacity or the want or the desire in the way that God has gifted teachers in the church to do that. So just because God has gifted, um, just because all of us give or called to give doesn't mean that God hasn't gifted certain people with giving and we're all called to be encouragement, but God has gifted some people to be encouragers. So these unique gifts, most spiritual gifts are manifestations of what goes on in the body on a normal basis that everybody else is called to do, but some people have a unique capacity to do that. So my, my role as a pastor is not to be your only feeding source. My role as a pastor is to, is to supplement what you should be doing all week long. And, um, and do, we do it in a different way. So you're, as you're studying and reading scripture and meditating on it throughout the week, when we get together, we do something corporately that everybody should be doing privately, independently. That was a good question. Anything else before we move on? Were you done with the Revelation 20 thing? Okay. <laughs> Stephen? Oh, good question. How do we keep, for, how do we keep from imposing our own presuppositions on the text when we're just reading through it? Yeah. <laughs> the, the reformers had a principle, um, oh, I forget the Latin phrase for it right now, but basically it, uh, a scripture, uh, I'm not going to try it. Scripture interprets scripture. scripture. Scripture is its own interpreter. That was the, and what that means is that rat, when you, when I, I might spend a whole week studying two verses, but I'm not just studying two verses. I'm studying those two verses and making sure that it aligns with everything in its context. So, like we talked about last time, we may zero in here on two verses for a Sunday, but periodically, even in the sermon, we bounce back and we say, okay, remember this is in the context of this. I did this last week, right? Remember chapter seven through ten is two weeks in the life of Jesus. And we quickly recap that. Now I'm quickly recapping that today because some of the things in the text today um, are sort of mushroomed out into the context so you're always reading the general context we never I, I follow a principle called never read a bible verse and it's greg kokel i borrowed that too i borrow a lot of my stuff uh, greg kokel says never read a bible verse and by that he means you never read a bible verse you always read the context always read the paragraph above the paragraph beneath and the paragraph in which that bible verse happens you never read a Bible verse. You'll always read the context because sometimes you can read a Bible verse and you think it means something, but then you turn around and you read the context and you realize, oh, okay, that's not what he's talking about. Like John 10, my sheep hear my voice. We like to, we like to, people, Christians, like to cut that phrase out and say, there, see, we, 
All of us Christians should be hearing privatized revelation. All of us, if we're his sheep, should be listening for the voice of Jesus constantly. And we should be listening for his still small voice in our in our heads. Well, is that what that verse is talking about? You read the context and what is it describing? It's talking about the call of Christ to his sheep. Well, if you just read that phrase and you come to it with that presupposition, you're going to see in that passage what you think it means. But if you look at the entire context, you quickly realize that that's not what it means. So I think that the key to staying away from that is a couple things. You you always have to remember that no matter when I'm reading or what I'm reading in Scripture, I'm always reading with certain presuppositions. Everybody brings presuppositions to the text. And I need to understand that and be aware that my culture influences how I think, my flesh influences how I think, and I have to be aware that there is that danger there. And then I always need to read widely in Scripture and never just read my little pet passages or my pet psalms or my pet gospel or whatever. I need to be reading all of Scripture constantly because my, that informs my theology. So I'm, I'm reading something from the Old Testament and I don't neglect the Psalms because I think they're dry and I, I don't neglect the prophets because I don't understand them. I read these things and I glean what I can from them because all of that affects my mind and my view of Scripture. And so when I'm, when I'm reading all of Scripture and reading widely and reading, remembering that I'm bringing presuppositions to the text, we can avoid that. That help? And then you've always asked yourself, when you think you come to the meaning of the text, you always have to ask yourself, does this fit everything else I know to be true from Scripture? Does this fit with other passages of Scripture that that uh, I know the meaning of? Or have I discovered something that nobody else in the history of Christianity has discovered about this text? I've come to a new meaning from the text. If you've come to a new understanding of the text, you have come to the wrong understanding of the text. There is nothing new under the sun. Okay, any other questions before we move on? Okay, so we, we observe the text, we interpret the text, we find the applications to the text, and then having done that, we quickly review the process that I go through. And keep in mind, this is not the standard for everybody who teaches a lesson or teaches a Sunday school class or preaches a sermon, but this is the process that I go through. I have a piece of paper where I keep track of all those observations. This is what one of my outlines looks like before I brought the stuff today that I intended to bring last time. So this is what one of my outlines looks like, and it's just a... It's just phrases and subphrases, and it's all indented to show sort of the structure of the passage. And I put the red words of Jesus in red letter. I take out the verse additions, the verse breaks, so that uh, sometimes I leave them out. Most of the time I take out the verse breaks uh, because I, I want those to be out of there so that I'm just seeing the text itself, not artificial divisions in the text, which might affect how I think or how I'm viewing the passage. And uh, then I sit down with this, and I write some observations on the right-hand side or questions that I need to ask or further word studies. I highlight phrases or words that are common or words that are repeated in the text or words that are repeated in the context. Um, if it starts with the word therefore, I will write at the top of this passage, I will write a one-sentence summary of the context so that I'm making sure that I have on this piece of paper as I'm looking for it a reminder of what has come before and maybe what comes after it. So that's where I do a lot of my observation work. And then I have a, a yellow pad where I'm writing down a list of observations and things, questions that I need to ask the text and questions that I need to get answered or words that need to be studied. And then when I've done all of that, then I read commentaries. And this is Thomas asked me this question. What type of resources do you use or commentaries do you use in studying the passages of Scripture? And one thing, but, but does everybody know what a commentary is? Does anybody not know what a commentary is? Don't be afraid to raise your hand. Okay, a commentary is based, I'll tell you, I'll say it just in case there's somebody here that is afraid to raise their hand. A commentary is simply a book that is a comment on the Scriptures. 
So it's like the study notes in the bottom of a MacArthur study Bible or another study Bible, but it's a verse by verse, line by line or paragraph by paragraph comments on the passage of scripture with application and drawing out the meaning and talking about what the passage means, the historical context, etc. That's what a commentary is. Not all commentaries are created equal. I have a commentary on my shelf by Warren Wearsby of the book of, of uh, Hebrews that is about three-eighths of an inch thick. I have a commentary on my shelf from A.W. No, John Owen. John Owen on the book of Hebrews. The introduction is two one-inch volumes. That's the introduction to the book of Hebrews. Then it's six more one-inch volumes commentaries on the book of Hebrews. So my John Owen set of commentaries on Hebrews takes up this much shelf space. Now, one of those is going to be very rich and very feeding to my soul. Guess which one it is? It's not going to be the real small one. It's going to be the John Owen commentary on the book of Hebrews. Uh, A.W. Pink has a commentary on Hebrews that's this thick. There are application commentaries that really don't deal with the meaning of the, comment, of, the, of the passage so much as they kind of assume or just state the meaning of the passage and then they give applications. And there are historical background commentaries like William Barclay. William Barclay has this, he's kind of a liberal in a lot of ways, but he, he's really good with the history of Rome and ancient history and how words were used and some of the context and the historical context behind different books in the New Testament. Barclay has a series of New Testament commentaries, and they're really good for all of the historical background behind a passage of Scripture. His understanding of the passage itself sometimes is off the beam, but his understanding of the history is really good behind it. There's stuff about Roman rulers and culture and stuff like that. Uh, John MacArthur's, uh, well, John MacArthur is kind of a balance between the application commentary and what we would call an exegetical commentary. An exegetical commentary is one that gets into the meaning of words and the syntax and the Greek phrasing and all of that stuff to really try and get at the meaning. And MacArthur is kind of somewhere between, uh, Warren Wearsby and a strict exegetical commentary, but he kind of leans more towards the exegetical side. MacArthur's commentaries are, um, oh. I was going to try and ignore that, but I can't. MacArthur's commentaries are kind of between that. A lot of good exegesis dealing with Greek words and syntax and historical context, but also very good application. And uh, so I rely on the words, the ones that I'm using for the Gospel of John, for instance, or Leon Morris, which is about this thick on the Gospel of John. It's really good. J.C. Riles is really good. He has a, a four-volume series on the four Gospels. Uh, J.C. Ryle wrote in the 1800s, so his 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 approach and is real kind of like a puritanistic uh, commentary on the scriptures. And then I got MacArthur's commentary, and then I got William Hendrickson. Hendrickson wrote a series of New Testament commentaries. He was amillennial, so basically my view is everything except for Revelation is really good in that whole series. Um, he doesn't interpret Revelation like he interprets the rest of the commentaries. If he did, the whole commentary set would be useless because. It just wouldn't be any good. But his commentaries on the Gospels and Paul's epistles are, are very good. So those, I you basically have four other commentaries that I consult when doing the work. And then a couple of background books like Josephus on the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, and that's kind of a good book for cultural background uh, information. Dave? Yeah, and, and I, I'm really not looking so much for where they're on base or off base. What I'm looking for is things that they might have seen in the text that I missed in my own study or my own observation. And so they will they will draw out something and and they might reference something earlier in John's gospel. And I think, oh, yeah, I remember that now. That is a good observation. Everybody else missed that. But there is that theme that I didn't catch when I was going through this or something in the historical context that maybe would shine light on the meaning of the passage that I didn't catch in my studies. So it's kind of a, a, a way of double checking my own observations to see if there's anything I missed, but also to see if I've come to any conclusions 
that are wrong that other people that I respect, good godly men, would disagree with. And if I come to that, if I come to the conclusion, okay, I, I've come to this meaning, and MacArthur says it means this, then I go back to work, really. And I say, okay, I want to make sure that if I'm disagreeing with John MacArthur or Leon Morris or J.C. Ryle, that I'm on good solid ground, that I'm that I'm not off the beam. And so I go back and I double check and make sure that I'm understanding this right and that what I'm understanding is not heresy. It fits with the context. And then I feel that I would be safe to say that, okay, MacArthur says this, but I would have to disagree respectfully that this is what I think is going on here. And I usually tell you that in the process of a sermon. I'll usually say, you know, this this is what I think is happening here. This wouldn't comport with this, but this is what I see going on. Well, if I were, it, it, well, I'm reading... No, that's understand. That's a good question. Am I not, when I say I consult men that agree with me, am I not doing the same thing as excluding people of differing opinions? In the Gospel of John, I'm, con, I'm consulting an amillennialist. Um, and I do that with Lloyd-Jones, too. I can't wait till we get to the part of, of, of uh, John where Lloyd-Jones has a, a thick, rich set of commentaries, and I'm going to add him into that mix as well. Well, he, I disagree with him on a lot of things. Infant baptism, covenantalism, amillennialism. But I always check my, I, I analyze these guys and say, okay, what does, what is he saying that I would disagree with? And what are his arguments? Because when I'm in a passage of scripture, most passages of scripture that I preach, I would agree with an amillennialist on. But if I'm in a passage of scripture where I disagree with one of my commentators, I make sure that I'm understanding all of their arguments and exactly what they're saying. So that if I'm disagreeing, I'm on solid ground and I'm basing it on the text and not on my presuppositions. So it's good to it's good to read guys that you disagree with, and I do do that. So if I were go, if I were preaching through the Book of Revelation, I would have Hendrickson's commentary out, and I would actually probably try and find what I think would be the best commentary on the other side of the fence, so that I could have that, and I would consult that because I know that that would be what I would consider the best one from that camp. The preacher, the teacher, the student of Scripture does his own work in the text. You do your own work in the text. You apply. Sound principles of study, inductive Bible study methods, doing your observations, coming to the meaning of the text yourself because you're applying these principles. You do that work first, and then you do bring in outside effort. You don't just, I don't just start up on uh, Monday morning and crack open a commentary and just start writing down things I want to plagiarize because that's not right because then I'm, then I'm not allowing the passage of scripture itself to work on me. So the point of studying the passage of Scripture is so that that passage of Scripture beats the tar out of me before I ever go to somebody else's take on that passage of Scripture. I want it to work its way through my heart before I ever go to somebody else and just take their stuff, their observations. That's that's similar. Doing that, taking somebody else's observations, is similar to downloading somebody else's sermon. What's the point of that? Right. The point of a, the point of a sermon of a pastor or teacher is so that the passage can work its way through that passage, that pastor or teacher, before it ever gets to the congregation. So that we are, I'm not just giving you what somebody else says and throwing it out there as if that's your job to obey that. I'm giving you what God has been grinding up in my own life all week long, and then I'm delivering it to you with passion because this truth has affected me in some way. Dave? Uh, the principles and the, the hermeneutics and the principles I learned in Bible college. This is how you study scripture. This is how you keep from getting off the beam on different meetings, these are the things that you look for, all of that I learned. But a lot of the way I approach it and what I do and my own style of meditation, and I don't mean meditation, but I mean just sitting and kind of churning over Scripture, all of that has been the process. Some of that has changed. There are things that I never used to do when I was in Bible college. Like, for instance, when I when I get done with all that observation, 
This is the thing I told you about last week. It's just a big sheet of paper like this, and it's got real small, four columns, real small lines on both sides. This I sit down and I write, if I have a heading or a three-point outline, I write introduction, point one, point two, or introduction, point one, point two, point three, across the top of this. And then I organize my thoughts and the, the observations in the passage underneath each of those columns. And I kind of flesh that out. And that is what I call fleshing out a sermon or hanging the meat on the bones. Because every sermon has a bones, it has a structure, and it has meat, the stuff that you put on the bones of the sermon. Then from this, after I've got everything here, my cross-references are all in the right column. The quotes that I, you know, Ryle quote, page 214 in Ryle's commentary. MacArthur quote, page 64 in his commentary. Once I get all of that stuff done, little quote from Spurgeon over here, poem I want to use or quote or whatever, a song lyric and a movie clip, and I got all that stuff arranged where I want it to be on this sheet. Then I sit down and I type this. And this is 14, page, uh, 14 pages, 10 font, paragraph style, this is my manuscript. And this has the introduction. This has my sermon exactly as I would expect to teach it if I had my way. And it all came out the way I wanted it to come out, which it never does. And Aiden likes to sit there in the front pew and kind of go through this and try and find out where I'm at by seeing if I'm, how closely I'm following this. I just found this out a couple of weeks ago. So now I'm hiding this before the sermon so that she can't double check it. But if this, if everything went as I wanted it to go, this is what my sermon would sound like. And so some people who have missed the sermon and the audio didn't get recorded adequately or something like that, I've often just sent them my manuscript and said, well, this was my, this was what I planned to preach. It didn't quite come out that way. So I manuscript the sermon and this becomes what I hope to say on Sunday morning. And then, then from that, so I've, I've taken it from nothing and I put skeleton, put together skeleton, put flesh on it fleshed it out and dressed it up, which this is the, the full dressed version of what I hope to say. Then I take it and I condense it to this. And this is what I take into the pulpit with me this morning. And this is just, there's two passages, one, two, three passages of scripture here and a couple of cross references. So I make sure I get the right reference in the context and uh, a couple of points of application. And that's what I bring into the pulpit with me is that piece of paper. And that looks like a lot. Some Sundays there, I don't even have this piece of paper because there's there's nothing I'm quoting on here. So the goal is to know this so well when I step into the pulpit that I don't need this. So that's my goal today is to not need this other than to look down at the cross references and read Galatians 1, Matthew 10, and 2 Corinthians 2. So if you don't hear me quote those three passages of Scripture, Galatians 1, Matthew 10, 2 Corinthians 2, then you know that it didn't come out like I had planned it to come out. Sometimes it doesn't. Yep. Yeah, if somebody disagree, if I disagree with somebody's take on a text and, and they're an ungodly person, a wicked person, or a false teacher, I'm not interested in understanding their perspective at all to teach. But if they're a godly man who has done the work and he comes at it from a different perspective and he's seeing this in a different way, I want to understand why he believes what he believes. So that's why I do, that's why I do the work of checking with somebody who would disagree with me on that. And I see, does their, does their argument hold water? Do they adequate, adequately represent my argument or are they building a straw man and attacking it? What assumptions are they making that they're bringing to the text? What are their presuppositions? What are they not seeing in the text that I see? What do they see that I'm not seeing? Those are all the questions that I would ask. But that goes back to the, that goes back to the truth that we all bring our suppositions to the text. Everybody does. And I'm aware of what my suppositions are. My supposition is that every text of scripture can be interpreted in its own context. And that I do not need a cross-reference to understand what this passage of scripture means in its own context. The historical, grammatical context in which this passage is written, it stands on its own. By the way, one last quick thing. Is there any other questions, by the way? Maybe one last quick thing, and then I'll close in prayer, because we're at our time. 
um, you will notice that when I'm preaching, very seldom do I say, okay, turn over to here and 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 have you do a Bible drill on a Sunday morning. Do you notice that? And there are other pastors who, they're friends of mine, it's just a different style. It's completely a style thing. It's not a doctrinal thing. It's not a, you know, it's not a heresy, false teacher thing. It's completely a style thing. There are other pastors who say, okay, I want you to see this, what John says here. I want you to see how Matthew says this. And then I want you to flip over to Revelation. I want you to see First John. Then we'll go back to the Old Testament. And you spend half the sermon flipping back and forward, reading these cross-references back and forth. I don't do that. And there's a, a reason why I don't do that. And it comes back to a philosophy. And I told you last time, preaching is a theological enterprise. It comes back to a theology that I have and a philosophy that I hold to that's theologically driven. And the philosophy and theology is this, that every passage of Scripture can be understood in its own context without reference to anything outside of that context. Its meaning should be obvious. So when I'm reading a passage of Scripture and I'm preaching through it, I don't want, I don't, you don't need to flip everywhere else. I want you to say, oh, I see what this means and I see that from this context. So that you're not thinking, Jim showed me what this passage means by showing me this one and 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 this one. I want you to see that Jim showed me what this passage means in this context by this author and that I can see that for myself in that passage that we are studying. And I don't need to go outside of that passage to find the meaning of that passage. Because every passage has its own meaning in its own context and the goal is to get to that and to understand that without having to rely upon things outside of the text. There are exceptions to that when one writer quotes another writer. Then I think it's legitimate to go back to the other writer and say, okay, when he wrote that, what was he saying? What did this writer who quotes him understand him to be saying? And how does that affect what we believe here? So when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, we'll go back and look at the passage that Jesus quoted in its context, see what it means in its context, how Jesus was using that, and how does that then understand affect our understanding of what he's saying when he quotes it in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Okay. That was, uh, man, even two weeks just felt like I was, I raced through a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't have time for. So let's pray. And when we get into Bible study and hermeneutics and everything, we'll kind of be able to work our way more slowly through some of these things with some real life examples that I think will kind of be very helpful. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.